The following audio is for Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. Uh, turn with me to John chapter 3. Uh, all last year, we were studying the book of Daniel under the title, Living in Babylon. And uh, we were there for a long time. I started to feel bad for you because you know, we're always talking about, well, we're in Babylon. We're in a pagan world. And we're, we're all starting to go like this. Oh, it's a pagan world out there. Go ahead. Save yourselves. You know, kind of like, oh, it's just kind of depressing. So uh, I want you to know, yeah, we live in Babylon, but we're walking with Jesus. And so this year, the series title for the sermons is Walking with Jesus, and the, and the great majority of sermons uh, are all going to be from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're going to just take these wonderful lessons when Jesus was here on earth, and the disciples were walking with him, and we're, gonna, we're just going to jump into those stories and into those lessons, and I think you'll find immediate application to your life. Now, Walking with Jesus has to have a beginning point. There, there has to be a place where you enter into relationship with Christ, you give your life to Christ, and then start walking with him. And when I, when I think of that beginning place, I can't think of a better place to start than John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is the conversation between two men. Jesus is one of them, and the other one is a man named Nicodemus. Now, just to help you understand the chapter a little bit, I want to tell you a little bit about Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a rabbi. He is a well-educated um, he is uh, uh, the, an ancient education for a Jewish rabbi would have been a theological education, but it would have also, because their law came from the Bible, the, the books of the law written by Moses, every theologian was also an attorney. And many of them were judges, and many of them were uh, chosen to rule uh, over and represent the people. And so Nicodemus is, he's a rabbi, he's an attorney, and he is a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, politically and theologically, he's a Pharisee. Now remember, ancient Judaism, your, your theological bent and your political party are, are all mixed up together. So a Pharisee is, uh, he's one who is conservative theologically, and he's conservative politically as well. Um, Nicodemus, because of all of that, he would have been a man of station, a man of position, uh, education. Maybe his education would have been what we would call a Harvard or a Princeton education. Because of all of that, he would have attained wealth and a certain amount of renown being in the Sanhedrin. And so this is who who he is. Now we're going to read this conversation uh, that Jesus has with him, and there's nothing in this conversation that's going to indicate to us that Nicodemus came to the place where he gave his life to the Lord right here in John chapter 3. But this is why I want you to know the whole story of Nicodemus, because we know from Scripture that there's a time and a place where he absolutely became a follower of Christ. In fact, Nicodemus is named among the very first who believed after the crucifixion. Now, there were many who believed after the resurrection, but Nicodemus is named before the resurrection, after the crucifixion. The scripture says 
that Nicodemus, along with another member of the Sanhedrin, um, Joseph of Arimathea, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Christ. This was, this, this was political suicide for them. Uh, they, they had already, they, uh, they were already on the outs with the Sanhedrin. They were not included on the night that Jesus was arrested and betrayed in the mockery of a trial because they, they already knew their leanings. But they literally publicly declared their faith, a confession of faith by going and crucifixion was meant to be shameful, humiliating, so that it would scatter all the followers of anybody that was involved in politics. And they went and identified themselves publicly with Christ, and they asked for his body. And the Bible says that Joseph had a, had a tomb made for himself, and they prepared Jesus' body, and they allowed Jesus to borrow that tomb for three days. Because Jesus didn't need a permanent tomb. He just needed to borrow it for three days. I love the sound of that. He can say, can I just borrow your grave? Not going to be there long. (laughs) And so that's who Nicodemus is. We know that he becomes a believer. This is the first conversation recorded with him. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was also a ruler of the Jews. And he came to Jesus by night. He's probably not ready to come to Jesus in the light of broad day. (laughs) He's still finding his way. He wants a little privacy. So he comes to Jesus by night and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, it, just do you, do you hear it? It, it speaks of education. Uh, his language is good. Uh, it speaks of station. Now, he's still very humble. Uh, here is a man who is very well-educated, really smart, intellectual man, who calls the uneducated carpenter from Galilee rabbi humble, sincere. But also this, this opening remarks, it smacks of a, of a memorized opening speech. It's kind of like you're going to have a job interview, right? And you're going to go to the job interview. And so you've memorized the first part because you want to, you want to make that good first step forward, right? So he's memorized the beginning. He's got it. And verse three says, Jesus answered. But really when you read it, it's Jesus interrupted, He's got his his prepared speech, but Jesus interrupts verse 3 and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is Jesus getting straight to the point. You know, Jesus knows the heart of every man. He knows the heart of every woman. He knows what Nicodemus' real questions were. So he he bypasses the chit-chat and he gets to the heart of the matter. And, and we know that this is what Nicodemus came for because he engages him right away in the conversation. And Nicodemus says, born again, you, can, you, you can't see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water, this, this is just speaking of what happens when a woman gives birth, her water breaks. And we, we know this from the very next verse. Jesus will explain it. So whatever is born physically, whatever is born of water and the spirit, he's got to have both births. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. You say, well, how do you know that's what he's talking about with the water? Because verse six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. There are, there's a physical birth. But there's also a spiritual birth. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel. Don't be amazed, Nicodemus, that I say to you, you must be born again. Doubles down on it. He says it again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You don't know where it's coming from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So the first thing we got to look at here in this passage is, the first question we have to ask is, what does it mean to be born again? Nicodemus clearly doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. He is a theologian who has been versed in all of the ways of Judaism and the Old Testament. What does it mean? What do you mean be born again? So what is it that Jesus is saying to us? Let's, let's use this as a starting place. Notice what Jesus did not say. And it, it should almost scream at you. It should be incredibly obvious, living the, given the world that we live in. But we still miss it. Jesus did not say, Nicodemus, you won't go to heaven unless you're good. L look at it. It, it. There's no reference to being good at all. He says, you've got to be born again in order to go to heaven. Oh, that doesn't fit what we think. In fact, I would suggest to you that if you and I had the time and the predisposition, if we went to the mall and we stood there and we could get people to stop and answer our questions and be authentic, I'd suggest to you that 80% of them, minimum, maybe 90%, would, if we ask them about salvation, we ask them about heaven, they would say, well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to be a good person. Their answer is, I kind of think God weighs the good and the bad in your life, and if you're a good enough person, you'll make it, and I'm trying to be a good person. And I would suggest to you, that's not just the mall and billings. I would suggest to you that 80% of the world thinks you just yeah, there's a heaven, I believe there's a God, and so you, I, I'm just going to try to be good. And Jesus says, you've got to be born again. So where do these collide? How can so many people believe going to heaven is about being good, and Jesus didn't even mention it? You, you have to understand what he means by being born again. If you go all the way back to Genesis in chapter 3, Jesus says to Adam and Eve, he says, you can eat of all the trees that you want in the Garden of Eden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you eat of that tree, if you eat of that tree in that day, you will die. You know the story. Adam and Eve ate of that tree and they didn't die. Was God lying? Was he just trying to bluff them so they wouldn't eat from that tree? What, what happened there? Well, they didn't die physically. They didn't die psychologically. They still had intellectual capabilities. They didn't die emotionally. They could still feel things, but they did die. They died spiritually. You see, the Bible says at the very beginning that God breathed into man and gave him the breath of life, that, that mankind, male and female, were made in the image 
of God. It's why you and I are different than animals. We have in this, this this longing for eternity. We have in this this sense of right and wrong and justice and injustice. We have in us some, some longing for purpose and meaning in life. It's because we are made in the image of God. And when we chose sin, when we choose disobedience, then that part dies. The scripture says the wages of sin is death. When Paul's writing to the Ephesian church in chapter 2, writing to Christians, he says, before you came to Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So what does a dead person need? A New Year's resolution? Turn over a new leaf? A gym membership? What does a dead person need? A dead person needs to be made alive. The Bible uses a a word for salvation sometimes called regeneration. Jesus here in John chapter 3 calls it being born again. That's what he's talking about. And it's why being good isn't mentioned. Because I wasn't good enough for heaven and neither were you. When your turn came, just like Adam and Eve's, and you had choices, what did you choose? You chose selfishness. You chose yourself. You chose disobedience. You chose to be the boss of your own life. You didn't want anybody telling you what to do. You chose your own path. And that choice kills. Sin always, always, always ends in death. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you're not born again, if, if your spirit isn't made alive again, you can't go to heaven. You can't get there because it's not only not about goodness, it's the opposite. This is the understanding that I don't have any in me at all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to their, our own wicked way. And God laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And that's what changes here. Well, uh, Nicodemus still doesn't get it. Look in verse 9. Nicodemus says, I, I, how can these things be? To this question, Jesus asks a question in verse 10. Are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things? Uh, if you'll allow me, just to paraphrase a little bit, it's Jesus saying, you've got to be kidding me. You're the theology professor at the University of Jerusalem and you don't get this? And yet we know we live in a world that doesn't get this. The scripture says the natural man can't understand the things of the spirit, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. They're not just intellectually reasoned out. And that's Nicodemus's problem. Jesus goes on and he says, he says in verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, then how are you going to believe when I tell you heavenly things. And Jesus here is trying to help Nicodemus differentiate between a couple of things. Here it is. You've got to understand that there's a difference between earthly things and spiritual things. This is a problem that many of us have had. Maybe you and your journey, this is a part of your testimony. Or maybe you've got really good friends, this is their struggle. And Nicodemus' struggle seems to be that he's letting his brain and his intellect get in the way of faith. Now in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus uses the word believe seven times. 
Seven times he's going to use the word believe. And not one time is he referring to whether or not Nicodemus believes that there's a God. Nicodemus clearly believes there's a God. His introductory statement was, we know that you've come from God. He, he is a, he's a theology professor. He believes there's a God intellectually, but he's never made it his life's commitment. He's never given his heart and soul to God. That's what he doesn't get. And many of us, that's our struggle, right? Many of us, we have friends that that's our struggle. Their, their struggle is intellectual because they can't get creation and evolution worked out because, they, because the science is just pulling them in and they, and they want to study it and study it and study it and quantum physics and the ever-changing universe. And, but, but here's the flaw with that. I don't want you to follow this with me. It, it's not that the study of science in the universe isn't an incredible study. It is. And I believe it points to a creator. But when you have studied everything and when you have learned all that you can learn, when you have grown in your understanding of any subject matter, at the end of the day, what do you have? You have more questions than when you started. When I was a kid, the science taught that the, that the universe was ever expanding. And last two weeks ago, they said the universe is contracting. Huh? Well, which one is it? And then they said, yes, it was, it was expanding, and now it's contracting. Well, why? And their answer is, we don't know why. Now, the greatest minds in the world are studying this. So it's, it's not that it's not intellectually stimulating and incredible to try to figure out the, the scientific laws of the universe. But at the end of the day, you can't reason your way to heaven. Whether you are brilliant or not the sharpest tool in the shed, you can't reason your way to heaven. It happens by faith. This is Nicodemus's problem. When you're really, really smart, you kind of think well, salvation should be here. And God takes salvation and he puts it here. If getting to heaven was based on a certain intellectual understanding, then a whole bunch of us wouldn't make it. If getting to heaven was based on how much money you put in the offering plate, a whole bunch of us wouldn't make it. If getting to heaven was based on your goodness, none of us would make it. And so God takes it and he puts it on the bottom shelf. This is what Jesus says more than once. Unless you become like a child, you won't go to heaven what is down here on the bottom shelf? Faith. Believing. And whether you believe as a child or whether you go through all of the science of everything you understand and you come to believe then, that's what it takes to go to heaven. You must be born again. It's in, it's in this conversation that we have John 3.16. Some could argue the greatest verse in all of the New Testament. John 3.16 is often called the entire gospel in one verse. It's in this conversation that Jesus is the one who says it to Nicodemus. Look at it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish 
but have everlasting life. Look at the whole gospel here in one verse. Where does it start? Well, the verse starts with for God. God is the originator of the plan of salvation. God is the designer of the plan. God is the one who gave us a plan of salvation. And the scripture says that Jesus Christ was the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. That means before God ever said, let there be light, he knew that Adam and Eve would sin. He knew that you and I would sin. And he planned on a way of salvation for us. Salvation starts with God. Religion starts with man. You know, you can always recognize religion. Religion is about being good. Salvation originates with God because he knew we couldn't be good enough. What was the motive of God? For God so loved. We live in a world that because of war, because of injustice, because of crime, because of cancer and sickness and disease, because of heartache and brokenness, we live in a world where many people think that God's not there or he's not good. And Satan loves when we fall for that because the scripture says God so loved the world. It's a, it's a reflection of who he is. It's a reflection of his character. It was the motive for salvation. And what's the object of salvation? The world. When, when John 3.16 speaks of the world, it's not talking about oceans and mountains. It's talking about the population of the world, the people of the planet. God so loved the world. He loves you. That's why he came up with a plan of salvation. He so loved the world that, how do you define love? That he gave. Do you realize that love can never be defined outside of giving? So why when a couple get married, what do they do? They give themselves to each other. And it's why Paul uses marriage in Ephesians 5 to talk about us giving our lives to Christ. Love means you give yourself. You give your, your life, your toil, your, your blood, your sweat, your tears, your, your money. You, you, you're willing to watch Hallmark movies because you love. So God so loved the world that he gave and and what would be the greatest single expression of giving? He gave his one and only son. Now, there's a lot of people that kind of wish that John 3.16 stopped like that. God so loved the world that he gave his son. But there's another part of the gospel in this verse, and that is the condition for salvation. That whoever believes. See, it's not that God so loved the world and so the whole world gets to go to heaven. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't go to heaven. So what does that mean? Well, it means that whoever believes in him. Remember, remember I told you, believe is used seven times in this passage. It's the word faith. It's on the bottom shelf. You put your faith in Christ, and it doesn't matter whether you're the poorest farmer in Nepal uh, or a, a widow in, in uh, Bangladesh doesn't matter if you're a Christian in a prison in China. Whoever believes. Whoever believes is the condition. And what's the final promise? Well, there's, it's a two-part promise. It's really good. 
You will not perish. That doesn't mean you won't die. Remember Jesus said in this passage, whatever is flesh is flesh, whatever is spirit is spirit. He's not talking about your body. He's talking talking about your spirit, your soul. Your soul won't perish. It won't go to hell separated from God forever. And not only that, that's half the promise. The other half of the promise is you'll have everlasting life. Oh, listen to it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, the last thing that I want to share with you this morning is that because the gospel is from God, it has divine power and everyone responds to it. Now, a lot of people know John 3.16, but very few people know verses 17 and 18. This is what the context of that says. Jesus says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why Jesus came. God could have condemned the world without sending Jesus. He didn't have to send Jesus to condemn the world. He obviously sent Jesus to Look at what it says. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes, there it is for the seventh time, actually the sixth time, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Uh, in the world that we live in, and, and we, we do this with our vocabulary, we do it by the way we think, we, 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 think, we think of people spiritually in three categories. We have, we have people who are Christ followers and believers over here. Over here, people who hate God, don't want anything to do with Christianity, don't believe that Jesus is the way of salvation, and they've rejected him. And then we, we see the bulk of population of the planet in this middle spot. It's not, it's not light or darkness. It's gray. It's, they're still on their journey. They're still on their path. We see them as maybe like Nicodemus. Well, I believe in God, but I don't know how to get there. And we kind of sometimes even kind of think, well, they're, they're good people. If they get killed in an untimely car wreck, then God will probably let them in. And we kind of fall into that way of thinking, even though the Bible doesn't support it at all. Jesus always speaks of two groups of people, never three, two. Those who have received him were born again. And those who have not received him are condemned already. You see, the gospel demands a response. It's, 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 it, has a, it has a divine dynamic being from God God offers you his one and only son for salvation. So if you don't receive that, you reject it. To not receive it is to reject it. And yet God loves us so much that even when we were the enemies of God, even when we were condemned, even when we had rejected him over and over and over again, he still extends to us the plan of salvation so that whoever believes shall not perish and have everlasting life. This is the work that God wants to do in you. For about the next eight weeks or so, as we talk about walking with Jesus, all the sermons at the beginning of the series are all how that begins. Just like this morning, how does a walk with Jesus begin? And so if you've got friends, loved ones, you've got that one you've been praying for, maybe it's been a long time since you invited someone 
to come to the worship service with you. I want to encourage you. These are going to be perfect sermons for your friend who's still trying to figure out who Jesus is. They're still on the journey. They're all going to come right from the Gospels. They're all going to be conversations that Jesus has with people. And this will be the great time for you to invite someone to come along with you. Think about who that could be and then invite them to come and join you. And we'll start the year off. How do you walk with the Lord? Well, I'm looking forward to 2020. I'm looking forward to doing 2020 with you. And I know at the end of this year, we will pause like we did this morning and rejoice at the great things that God's going to do in our midst. Happy New Year. God bless you. for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.